Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Steve, Harry, Dick, John, Harry, three. One, two, three, Ned's Richard, two. Henry's four, five, six, then who? Then who indeed? That's what this series is all about. The history of the British monarchy. And that was the start of the rhyme I learnt at school to remember the order of succession from William I right through to Charles III. And in this episode, we get to the start of our rhyme with our first Willie. William I, William the Conqueror, Duke William of Normandy, known in his time as William the Bastard because, well, he was illegitimate, but he was also a bit of a bastard. So Normandy was an independent region in the northwest of France, ruled by William's father, Duke Robert, who never married, but appointed William as his successor. And as we all know, William also ended up ruling England. I think maybe I'll just briefly recap the events leading up to the invasion of 1066, following the death of the English king, Edward the Confessor. Now, the previous 50 years had been confused and a little bit confusing, so I hope that my brief recap clarifies matters rather than making them even more confusing. Let's see. Basically, the English had been struggling for a long time to cope with constant attacks from the Vikings. At various times, the whole of the north of England had been under Viking rule with their capital at York. And in the disastrous reign of the weak Ethelred the Unready, a Viking king, Swain Forkbeard, invaded and kicked him out, exiling him to Normandy. Now, Ethelred had children by two different wives, one English and one Norman. The most important son he had with his first wife, his English wife, was a great warrior who became known as Edmund Ironside. But like many great warriors, he died prematurely, but not before he fathered a son, Edgar. Now remember Edgar, as we'll come back to him later. And so then Ethelred's second wife, his Norman wife, was Emma, and she was the daughter of the then Norman ruler, Richard the Fearless. And their most important son was called Edward. Swain Fortbeard only ruled for five weeks before dropping dead. Uh, but his son, Canute, was more successful. He ruled for 20 years. And then his son, Arthur Canute, died without having any heirs at all. So that was the end of the sort of Viking dynasty there, at which point Ethelred the Unready's son, Edward, who had gone to Normandy with him, was brought back from exile and crowned king. And that's Edward the Confessor. But Edward then goes on to make the same mistake as Hartha Canute, 
and also dies without an heir, leaving several claimants to the throne. So one, we got the Vikings, and having ruled England for a few years, they do have a reasonable claim. And two, we've got the Normans. Uh, Edward the Confessor was half Norman, as I say, via his mother, Emma. So the Normans have a reasonable claim. And then, of course, three, we've got the English. But as we've seen, Edward the Confessor has no heirs. Now, the Godwins are the richest and most powerful family in the country. And Harold Godwinson manages to be present when Edward the Confessor dies. And despite having no legitimate claim at all, he strong arms his way onto the throne. And Harold himself is half English, half Viking, which brings us back to the Vikings, his mother being King Canute's sister. So it's, I'm sorry, but it's very tangled. Oh, and then there's Edgar Atheling. Who the bloody hell is Edgar Atheling, I hear you ask? Well, if you remember, Ethelred the Unready had a son with his first wife, his English wife, Edmund Ironside, and Ironside had a son, Edgar, who, as a direct descendant of Ethelred, was perhaps the person in England with the most right to the throne. Hence his name, Atheling, which means princeling. And indeed, after Edward the Confessor dies, a group of English noblemen try to crown Edgar Atheling king. But Harold Godwinson has a much stronger army. He turns up in London and says, Nah, I don't think so. I think you'll find I'm the king. And that's the end of Edgar Atheling's putative reign. He doesn't go away, however, and will reappear later in the story. So, so don't forget him. Oh, sorry, this is, this is, uh, this is very um, tangled. I mean, when I was at school, all this was tidied up. And the patriotic, jingoistic version was that King Harold was the rightful king of England and William the Conqueror was a foreign invader and a usurper. But as we can see, it's not as clear-cut as that. Basically, whoever had the strongest army and would fight the hardest to take over would be king. Uh, which is what William set out to do once he'd heard that Edward the Confessor had died. He started putting together an army and he started building a fleet, which was the most important thing because they had to cross the English Channel, which has always been quite a tricky proposition, waiting for the weather to be right. It's quite a treacherous sea. It's not very wide, but it can be very difficult to cross. So the first thing William had to do was, was to build some ships and he got his half-brother, Odo, Bishop Odo, to finance that. Odo was a very powerful and wealthy aristocrat. And back then, bishops would get stuck in. It's a bit like a bishop in a chess game. They will fight alongside the knights and the castles and the king because the bishops would always come from the elite, from the aristocracy. It would be, you know, one son would go into the military or whatever, and one would go into the clergy. And bishops could make a lot of money because they, they had a lot of land and it was land that created your income, which is why down the ages, various monarchs have ransacked the church if they're short of funds. But in this case, Odo supported William, helped him build the fleet, and they were getting ready to sail. Harold tried to prepare. He put together an army, but then things got more complicated. Harold's brother, Tostig, he also felt that he had a right to be king. If Harold was going to try and take over, why didn't he? And following an argument with Harold, he went off to Norway and made an alliance with the Norwegian king Harald Hadrada, which means Harald Hardnut. Um, he was a very tough, charismatic, freebooting kind of a Viking king who had spent his early life leading a mercenary army. They'd, they'd got as far as... Byzantium, Constantinople, as it was then, and had helped the emperor of Constantinople to stay on the throne. And he had then returned and in similar uh, fashion to what was going on in England, he was the toughest guy and managed to get himself in the position of king. So when Tostig turns up and says, help me take England, you can have the Viking North and I'll have the Saxon South, Harold Hardnut is well up for it. And they set sail with an army packed onto about 300 ships. 
and land in the northeast at Tynemouth, having stopped to pick up some Scottish fighting men on the way. They marched on York, but Harold already had an army ready um, because he was preparing to defend against William, and in a sort of lightning-fast, quick march up to the north, gathering support along the way, he managed to arrive in record time and completely surprised Harold Hardnut and his brother Tostig and ambushed them. And at the Battle of Stamford Bridge, Harold Godwinson's army uh, completely annihilated this invading army. And in the process, both Tostig and Harold Hardnut were killed, which whilst I shed no tear for Tostig, who was a typical scheming younger brother. <laughs> Harold was a, was a really interesting uh, figure and he, he's worth finding out more. I'm not covering the, the Scandinavian kings in this series, but if you're interested, he, he's a character who's well worth finding out more about. And he couldn't ever have imagined that he was going to die in the north of England at Stamford Bridge. So Harold has won this battle and sustained reasonably heavy losses in the process, at which point he hears that William has finally set sail. William, in fact, was stuck for a long time on the Norman coast, waiting for the weather to change so that he could invade, which is perhaps what gave Harold the confidence to think that he could rush up to the north, although he had no choice. He had to stop that threat. But having stopped the threat of both the Vikings and his brother, he must have felt in a reasonably solid position. So... He rushed back again in another lightning-fast march and managed to get to Hastings in time to meet William and his invaders, and they met at a place called Battle, which uh, you think, what are the chances of that? Uh, but of course, it was only called Battle afterwards. So there is a huge pitched battle, an extremely violent and long-lasting battle that lasted the whole of the day, which was fairly unusual. And it could have gone either way. At any one time, one side had the upper hand. William had brought over on his ships a load of horses, and the Normans' preferred style of fighting was to rely on heavy cavalry charges. The English Saxon style of fighting was to form up foot soldiers behind these fairly impenetrable shield walls and use that as a defensive thing and then as you advance you can use it as an attacking thing and the Saxons mainly used their horses to just to get to the battlefield and to travel around on the battlefield and didn't particularly fight on horseback because it's quite difficult for cavalry to actually break a shield wall if it's heavily defended with spears and tough men. It's really an annoyed me actually watching the otherwise excellent Lord of the Rings films where there's the moment, and I can't remember which battle it is, but where the Peter Jackson has established the orcs in this huge army with these great long pikes, which are long enough that their troops can stand sort of 10 deep and, and the pike from the 10th guy back is still sticking out. And then Gandalf arrives with the cavalry the riders of Rohan, I think they are, and they charge down and they completely smash into the, the orc army and like a wedge and break their way through. But they would have just been slaughtered before they got anywhere near the first rank of orcs. They would have just impaled themselves on these pikes. So I don't to this day know why Peter Jackson gave the orcs pikes other than they looked cool, because um, as I say, it is really difficult for cavalry to to break through a strongly defended line of infantry. And cavalry is mostly used on the battlefield. When the infantry are broken and are fleeing, uh, the cavalry will go after them or they'll try and get round the infantry to get to the artillery or whatever. But the Normans under William relied on these uh, these great big charging horses, the Des Destrias, I think they were called. And so it was a slightly unusual form of combat for the Saxons who weren't used to it, but they were still held firm and they had the upper ground. So Harold was behind his shield wall towards the top of the hill and William basically got his archers to come forward and they just rained arrows down onto the heads of the Saxons over the shield wall enough so that they were disoriented and reduced in numbers enough that William could go all out for a final 
series of heavy cavalry charges that broke through the shield wall and finally defeated and and massacred the Saxon army. And William put together a hit squad of his of his best and toughest knights, uh, and he sent them specifically to go after Harold. He knew as soon as Harold was killed, that would be the end of the battle. And famously, because of the evidence, if you can call it that, of the Bayeux Tapestry, uh, and what some later historians said, there was this belief that Harold died from an arrow to the eye. There's a figure in the tapestry, and it's actually slightly ambiguous whether this figure is even Harold himself, but he appears to be pulling um, an arrow out of his eye, although there is evidence that the tapestry has been much altered over the years, and details changed, and it looks like originally this figure was someone throwing a spear, not pulling an arrow from their eye. So it may be that this was retrospectively changed to fit the myth that he'd been hit by an arrow. But whatever the case, this hit squad got to him, cut him down and, and butchered him, stripped him of his clothing, um, hacked his body about and castrated him, which means removing the entire wedding tackle. And he was left badly mutilated. Uh, William was a bit upset about that whilst he'd sent these men to kill Harold. He hadn't meant them to completely humiliate him in this way. This body could only be identified by Harold's wife, Edith Swanneck, who searched around the battlefield until she found this mutilated body. But that was the end of Harold, and that was in many ways the end of the Saxon rule in England. William immediately took his army, marched to London to secure that and got himself crowned as quickly as possible in the newly built Westminster Abbey. And he was crowned on Christmas Day, 1066, becoming the third king to be crowned in Britain in the year of the three kings. Now, Westminster Abbey, the original Westminster Abbey, had been built by Edward the Confessor, who had set up his royal court in the region and had built this, well, had commissioned the building of this church, which was going to be the biggest sort of church in Europe. Unfortunately, he died just before the, the ceremony to consecrate the building. So he never saw it completely finished because the, 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 he had set up his court outside. The, the, the English kings ruled in this area, which we now call Westminster, uh, which was outside the walls of the city of London. St. Paul's Cathedral was the main church in the city of London, and that was the East Minster. And Westminster Abbey was the Westminster. And the Royal Palace, the Palace of Westminster, was there, which is now the site of the Houses of Parliament. It was always outside the city, probably because it was less smelly and um, unpleasant place to live. Situated right on the banks of the Thames and connected to the city of London by this long, narrow road that ran alongside the River Thames, connecting the two sites, that road being the Strand. So William gets himself crowned on Christmas Day, and he commands the local Saxons to obey him and to shout, God save the king. And there's a lot of shouting goes on outside the, the, the palace of people attempting to shout, God save the king, but of course not being able to say it in French. The Norman knights who were defending William didn't know what was going on and thought that a riot was taking place. So they rushed out and killed all the locals and set fire to most of the buildings around the church. So William's rule didn't get off to a good start, but it was a sort of premonition of, of what was to come as he systematically dismantled the English ruling class, the aristocracy, the earls of England. Because power is given to you by land. If you own land, you have power and you control people. So he started replacing the English aristocracy, the English landowners, with his cronies, with the Normans who had helped him um, on the way over, helped him in the battle helped him conquer the country. So he would remove the local Saxons and replace them with Normans. It was a slow process. It, it accelerated over the years. Whenever there was any resistance to William, he would ruthlessly put down the revolt and install more of his men. And he also put Normans in, in charge of the churches, the bishops 
and the archbishops um, who, who alongside him wielded great power, but also, as I said before, were able to, to get pretty wealthy on the back of the church estates. So slowly the upper echelons of, of English society became French. And this is a situation that lasts for hundreds of years. It's, it's, it's a long time before the English monarchs actually start to speak English. So whilst they will have to learn some English in order to deal with their English subjects, they think of themselves as French, mostly speak French and spend most of the time in Normandy, which means that we have a two-tier system in England. The elite, a French word, the upper echelons of society, echelon, another French word, are French. The lower classes are Saxon. So French is the language of power, of government, of the law, culture, the arts, and Saxon is the language of the peasantry, which is why we have at least two words for most things in English. For instance, farmers use Saxon words for their animals, cow, pig, sheep. But by the time the animals are butchered and the meat prepared for the rich man's table, we use Norman words, beef, pork, mutton. So the early Norman rulers think of Normandy as their homeland and England as a sort of adjunct, a cash cow that they can milk. They also have to spend a lot of time in Normandy fighting the neighbours. Normandy is one of a number of different regions within France, all with their own ambitious dukes, and they're constantly at war with each other, trying to expand their territory and influence. Fighting brings you fame and fortune, because... If you beat the enemy and take their land, land equals wealth. And within England, within Britain, it wasn't plain sailing for William. As I say, there were various rebellions, uh, which William inevitably used as an excuse to increase his power and to take more control and to press his boot down more heavily on the local population. And one of the ways that the Normans did this was by building castles. This was a new invention for for Britain. Historically, the British had built these hill forts defended with ditches and, and fencing, which they would retreat to in times of trouble. But the Normans used the building of castles as a way of taking control. If an area, there was an uprising, the Norman army would go in, they would put the uprising down, they would demolish half the local buildings, they would use the rubble to, to help build this great mound. And on top of the mound, they would build initially a wooden palisade, a fence around it, and then a wooden fort in the middle of it. And then over time, this would be replaced by a stone castle, a very heavily fortified stone castle. This system known as the Mott and Bailey. Uh, how it worked is there would be a wall around the mound, the Mott, which would also enclose a large courtyard with small buildings in it. And that courtyard is the bailey with the main building, the keep, what you think of, I suppose, as the castle on top of the mot. And as I say, some would become enduring stone structures, which are now seen as romantic ruins, the remains of a chivalrous past. But at the time, this is a police state, this is a military state, and these are military strongholds, and they were much resented by the locals, but there's not much they could do about it. The Norman troops would be stationed in the castle, any trouble, they would come out and deal very heavily with the local population. So William spread his influence through England, even up into Scotland. Actually, there's a good, uh, there's a good pub quiz question, which is, which Shakespearean character was on the throne in Scotland? in 1066, the time of William's invasion. It's a slightly tricky one, actually, because most people would probably work it out and say, oh, is it Macbeth? It's actually Malcolm, who was the guy that defeated Macbeth. So the actual history was that King Duncan was on the throne. He invaded the territory of Macbeth, who was a powerful sort of warlord. Macbeth defeated Duncan in battle made himself King of Scotland, but Duncan's son, Malcolm, eventually raised an army and fought back and defeated Macbeth in battle and retook the Scottish throne as Malcolm III. And we've seen in the previous two episodes how the Scottish were constantly making raids over the border into the north of England, occasionally making bigger attacks in an attempt to invade, with the English responding by attacking back over the border themselves. 
But that didn't stop with William. It carried on for hundreds of years. Some would say uh, it's still carrying on. The English and the Scots never see eye to eye on anything. Uh, but also there was a rebellion in England, most famously in the Fenlands in the east of England, in East Anglia. A famous rebel emerged who was known as Hereward the Wake. And he led quite a strong English resistance to the Normans, attacking and then running off and hiding in the Fens, very much like Alfred the Great when he was hiding out in the Somerset levels and launching guerrilla raids against the Vikings. And Hereward became something of a folk hero, even though he was pretty ruthless. And for a while he had the Normans on the back foot and then he just disappeared. He's very similar to Robin Hood, this idea of the rebel hiding out in the countryside and making um, attacks on the Norman rulers. Now, Hereward was, was pretty successful for a while. Hereward the Wake, not to be confused with Hereward the Woke, who sent lots of letters to King William about uh, gender politics. No, Hereward the Wake was eventually, uh, well, nobody really knows what happened to him. He disappeared into history. He was probably killed, probably killed by someone who didn't know who he was, which is why they didn't shout about it. But having been reasonably successful, he sort of disappeared. But there were lots of stories written about him and, and myths developed about him. And he was the sort of, in some ways, a bit like King Arthur. He was the great British loser, fights back against authority, but is ultimately not successful. There was also a big um, uprising in the north where Edgar Atheling re-emerges. The powerful Saxons in the north, based around York, get behind Edgar and say, right, we're going to take over and Edgar is going to take his rightful place on the throne. So William sends a big, powerful army up and they're defeated. Edgar flees to Scotland where he's taken in by Malcolm III and the two of them over the years keep trying to mount fresh rebellions um but this leads to a, a very unfortunate and still badly remembered a period of william's reign known as the harrying of the north some people describe it as a sort of ethnic cleansing or a sort of year zero or whatever but he laid waste to the north killed thousands and thousands of people destroyed farms and farmland, burning, pillaging, led to massive famine and starvation where people were eating dogs and cats and rats and each other. It was a terrible time for the North and, and the numbers in the North of England didn't really recover and get back to pre-Norman levels for, for hundreds of years. Um, so it was pretty uh, traumatic and pretty devastating. But I think through doing this, William finally said, look, don't try and stand up to me. I will put you down ruthlessly. I, I, I will destroy you. So things did become more settled after that. Settled enough that William returned to Normandy so he could carry on campaigning out there and dealing with his pesky neighbours. And he left his half-brother Odo in charge. Bishop Odo, now um, probably the second most powerful man in England. And as long as... William is away the most powerful man. It was Bishop Odo who commissioned the Bayeux tapestry for his church in Bayeux. It was embroidered by English seamstresses, or whatever one officially is supposed to call them, and remains an amazing document. It's almost like a, a comic strip of the backstory to, and then the Battle of Hastings, and then finally the the coronation of King William. And that is thanks to Bishop Odo. So William carries on campaigning. Eventually he returns to England and he's slightly concerned. He's a bit worried that Odo is getting a bit too powerful and under slightly jumped up charges, he actually imprisons Odo, who remains in prison to the end of William's reign. William is in charge of this country but he's not sure exactly what it is. He's is. He's gone up to in and um, smashed the Scots about a bit and has reasonable success up there. He's, had, he's been less successful in Wales. The Welsh fought back pretty strongly. He had some incursions into southern Wales, built a couple of castles, but really concentrated his power in England. But he wanted to know exactly what it was he was ruling over. 
what England consisted of. And you know, the tribute you get from the land, whether you call it taxation or whatever, but landowners had to give a certain amount of goods and money to the king every year, depending on how much land they owned, what buildings were on it, what people um, they were in charge of, um, because the, the sort of lowest level of peasantry were essentially owned by the landowners. And William, so that he could effectively rule and so that he could effectively work out his income and make sure that he was getting the right amount, did a census. He sent uh, priests and monks and clerks around the country and they visited everyone, every landowner, and they took down all the details of, of the extent of the land and, and what was on it, as I say. And this was all compiled into this huge, great book. In fact, it ran to more than one volume, which the local Saxons nicknamed the Doomsday Book. For two reasons, partly because there's the idea that at, on Doomsday in Christian mythology, we are all taken from this earth in front of God and we give our account and we are judged. So it was the idea that this was a sort of William as God uh, taking the whole country and and squeezing the truth out of them and, and recording it all in a great book. But there was also a slight feeling that the coming of the Normans was doomsday. This was the end of the world. It was certainly the end of the Saxon world in terms of who owned and who ran the country. And the Doomsday Book, you could, if you want to look at it, go and visit the National Archive in Kew, which is an amazing institution and has got some fantastic documents there. It's always a really interesting place to visit. And you can see this original Doomsday Book in the National Archive that was completed in 1086 and still exists. And it is an extraordinary and extraordinary valuable historical document in terms of we know exactly what was going on in England at the time and exactly who lived there, who controlled it, who had the power. Recently, there's been a lot of activity around the right to roam in England about who owns the land and that the British people don't have access to their own country. And there's a sort of implication that this is a, a sort of a new thing, that these new wealthy people are are taking over and um, stopping people from getting access to, to their own countryside. But actually, it started before King William and was, was heavily cemented in his under his rule because, as I say, the land was divided up between his men, his his cronies. But also large amounts of land were enclosed and renamed as forests, which was this new French concept. And the forest was essentially the king's land and it was set aside and protected for hunting, which was the main pastime of the aristocracy hunting in the woods and so forest would be uh, not just woodland there would also be open land there were still commons which was the common land that the people would have access to but they suddenly found that they had access to a lot less land than they had been used to and hunting was a big sport for the king and was resented obviously by the locals because they would traditionally have hunted themselves there a deer and um, rabbits or whatever and they would have collected wood for their fires and for building and whatever but the, but this land was now inaccessible to them and the Normans started importing other animals for, for hunting um, such as pheasants were introduced to England by the, the Normans purely for hunting. Uh, pheasants initially had come from the Far East from China but had spread west because they were the perfect hunting birds because <laughs> because they're a bit shit. <laughs> they don't fly very high or very fast and they make a lot of noise when they fly, so they're perfect for hunting, which of course in, in William's day would have been done with a bow and arrow. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both, 
in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So... England becomes a very different place. Um, it's under Norman rule. The Saxon way of life is suppressed, quashed. A new set of rules come in and a new set of pretty unpopular rulers. But William carries on his campaigning, concentrating more and more in Normandy. Whilst attacking Mount, one of his local rivals, his horse stumbles and he's thrown forward in the saddle and now the Normans had these very high pommels on the front and the back of their saddle so that they could sit very firmly in the saddle as I said before they they did their fighting from horseback with with um, lances and as the horse stumbles William is thrown forward and this high pommel digs into his belly and ruptures his intestines and he is mortally wounded and he knows it and he's taken to nearby building to be looked after and he slowly dies and he calls his men to him and his sons and divides everything up between them. Uh, we'll deal more with that later, what happens with his sons, but essentially his eldest surviving son, Robert, is given the thing is William didn't really like any of his sons, didn't particularly respect them. So his eldest son, Robert, who might have been expected to rule in England, had had a very fractious relationship with his father. At various times, they'd actually been at war with each other and fought each other in battle. But there was a strict rule in Normandy that the succession should pass, has to pass to the eldest son. So he has to give him at least Normandy. So he makes Robert the Duke of Normandy he makes his second surviving son, William, he says he should be king of England, and his third son, Henry, he gives a large sum of money to. And we'll look next episode at these three brothers and their fractious relationship and how it has very many modern echoes with a certain royal family. Um, so actually, William sows the seeds of unrest and chaos because he's essentially split his kingdom in two between England and Normandy. And we shall see that that doesn't go at all well. But William eventually dies. He sent his son William off to England to make sure that he's there at Westminster, ready when the news come through that he's died in case anyone else tries to take over. Robert has gone off in disgust. So there's not even any of his family around as, as William eventually dies. Uh, even by then, a lot of his his powerful cronies are sort of um, rushing off and taking sides. It's like, well, William's dead. He's no more use to us. After he dies, his servants kind of nick his possessions. William is taken to Rouen Cathedral to be buried, but they didn't have a coffin big enough for him. So they squashed his, his bloated body, which was already decomposing and filling up with, with, with gases from his ruptured guts. They squash him into this coffin, which is a bit too small for him and as they try to stuff him into this tomb in the floor of the cathedral his his stomach explodes filling the cathedral with this foul stench as they squash him down so yes that's the end of king william he lived from 1028 to 1087 he was 59 years old when he died he ruled england for about 20 years 
and he died from an exploding gut. So there's our summary of our first ruler on the list, Willie, out of Willie Willie Harry Stee, with his ignoble end. And again, I asked the question, you know, what was it all for? Was it worth it? 20 years on the throne of England, stomach explodes, squashed into a hole in Rouen Cathedral, whilst everyone buggers off to secure their own power and he's forgotten. That grave has got moved over the years. It got um, ransacked, destroyed in the French Revolution as they're trying to obliterate the past of the ruling monarchy. All that is left of William is his thigh bone, his, his femur. And from what we can deduce from that, he was about five foot ten tall. My guest on today's episode, who will um, help me understand William and the Normans better, is Judith Green, who is Emeritus Professor of Medieval History at the University of Edinburgh, and who has written a book, uh, which was out in 2022, called The Normans, Power, Conquest and Culture in 11th Century Europe. So it is wonderful to have a proper expert on rather than just an amateur buff like myself. Welcome, Judith. Thank you. Now, first of all, because the, the idea idea behind my podcast is people who know a bit about history and will know the date 1066 and William the Conqueror, but perhaps not much else about the Normans and who they were. Um, do you mind just uh, just talking us through who the Normans were, where they came from and how they fitted in in, in France at the time? They were descended from a Viking leader who was uh, around in northwest France in the late ninth, uh, early 10th century. And the King of the West Franks was fighting on various fronts to establish his authority and being challenged by Viking incursions. And basically he thought he could do business with Rollo or Rue, the leader of, of these Vikings. And so he settled them on either bank banks of the River Seine. And gradually over the 10th century, their descendants uh, spread to form the Duchy of Normandy, and by the early 11th century, they were the late, their leaders were calling themselves Dukes of the Normans. So they were descended from Vikings, really. So, so when they arrived, and in, in in that time, France wasn't really an entity. I mean, when did it sort of start calling itself France, and and as sort of this is the country, as it were. Again, that's a 10th century development. There had been this huge empire founded by Charlemagne, um, which fell into various pieces. And the most, the biggest bits were France and Germany. And out of that, the kings of the West Franks adopted the title of, of King of France. But really, they controlled only the region around Paris. So mm. uh, people like William the Conqueror, um, had recognised the King of France, but then basically he was doing his own thing and he was an autonomous, independent prince by the time he chose to invade England. Right. And can you just talk us through how it worked with all these other, well, what do we call them? Do we call them duchies, counties, principalities, areas like Normandy, Brittany, Aquitaine and Gascony? Burgundy, yeah. which is which is all quite complicated, I think, for someone who doesn't understand exactly what was going on at the time, like myself. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure they understood what was going on. Um, it, it, they were successors of Carolingian uh, nobility, and the more powerful of them became, they were all ruling the Carolingian entities of counties, but the more powerful started calling themselves dukes, basically. So that was uh, like the Dukes of Aquitaine, for example, would be a parallel case. And um, it's still, you could see the historic shape of France by the 11th century, but um, who was going to be top dog was still not altogether clear. I mean, one of the things we forget about William the Conqueror is that this isn't his first conquest. Mm. He had taken over the county of Maine, which was centered on the city of Le Mans of the 24 hour race um, <laughs> to the south. And he was in, there were incursions into Brittany as well. Um, so although we think of Normandy as a sort of stable entity, William the Conqueror was already uh, being pretty aggressive towards his neighbors. And Maine, in a sense, was a practice run for England. 
Mm. And and when Harold had famously been shipwrecked and had been uh, living in Normandy, I believe he actually went campaigning with William for a bit. Yes, he did. And um, one of the problems we have is is quite what Harold thought he was doing in northern <laughs> France. Um, my obviously the the tapestry is telling you a story, knowing what happens at the Battle of Hastings. But the the probable truth of it is that Harold had gone to Normandy, if that's where he was headed at all, but was thinking of squaring William off uh, for his own takeover of the English throne. He mm. gets captured and he goes on a campaign with William to Brittany, where they're beating up the locals. Um, <laughs> and this is all shown in great detail on the Bayer Tapestry. So knowing that William was a potential threat, he may have wanted to try and form an alliance with him rather than a rivalry. I mean, he his choices were either to ally with William, possibly through marriage, and there's a mysterious female figure on, on the tapestry who could have been the prospective bride. Yeah. Um, but Harold had married... Now, is she the sister of the Earl of Mercy? But anyway, she, she is a, a powerful figure... Of, from one of the English families. So he wasn't free to marry, um, and that may have sort of part, been part of the problem. But he he takes, according to Norman sources, he takes an oath to William uh, that he's going to promise to support William in claiming the English throne. And then by claiming it himself, the Normans say, well, he's an oath breaker. Uh, he, he's broken his promises. So that justifies what we're doing. And it was quite important to William to to justify that invasion. Oh yes, wasn't it? Yes, and he he managed to get the support of the Pope. Yes, well, we think he did, but certainly naked power is is very much to the forefront of the Norman story. But even in the eleventh century, you can't just go around, um, particularly invading a Christian country and taking over from a Christian king. This is very bad news and all the contemporary norms. So you have to have a you have to be able to justify doing this. And indeed many people thought uh, in after 1066 that the Normans had done a terrible thing. All these Christians had been killed. Mm. We we had um Mark Morris on in the previous episode talking about Anglo-Saxon England and He's obviously also written a lot about post-conquest England. And his feeling was that certainly when William first invaded, he tried to treat the English Saxons, whatever you want to call them, quite decently because he needed them on side, as it were, and to agree to his invasion. And that Mark doesn't believe that William is necessarily the monster as he is sometimes portrayed. Although when I was talking to various historians about which monarch they might do one of them said well i could do william for you but i'd do a complete hatchet job on him so so i mean where do you stand on william and what what his intentions were and was he a monster when he first arrived well to take those to take those in order um he wanted to take over the kingdom he couldn't take it all over on the basis of one military victory in Sussex. Mm. So he's going to have to tread carefully. A big staging post is getting control of London, which he did. And then that opened the way to coronation. And once he's crowned, then he has uh, the bishops on side. And they're very important in England. Um, Edwin and Morker, the, the Midland and Northern Earls, uh, are prepared to submit and they abandoned the English claimant to the throne at that point. Poor old Edgar Atheling. But it's pretty clear uh, within months, William is sending Normans into the Midlands and the North, staking out castles and so on. So I think the idea that it was all going to be hunky-dory till about 1069, 70, and then he, then he gets cruel and horrible is, is an oversimplification. Edwin and Morker soon realise the writing is on the wall and um, Edwin is killed by his own men and Morker um, is imprisoned for the rest of his life. Um, William is a hard, ruthless ruler. Um, looking back, other writers thought, contemporary writers or writing in the early 12th century, thought that his ter the turning point of his reign 
was 1075 when he had executed the last English Earl. Um, but really and truly, he did what it he he always did what it was necessary to win. He he was a hard man, and the Anglo-Saxon chronicler calls him that, I think. You had to be hard to win. And these Norman leaders, wherever they were, were like this. If you were soft or decent, like Robert Curthose, William's eldest son, um, you don't you don't score. <laughs> and and Robert was seen. Robert was a hero of the First Crusade. I mean, whatever we think about Crusades, but um, he he declined the crown of Jerusalem. He lost the Duchy of Normandy. He was written off for for decades by Anglo-Norman chroniclers. So the ones that you don't like um, are the ruthless, cruel ones, um, particularly uh, the Conqueror and Henry the First, um, because you had to be hard to be a king. Oh, just to backtrack a bit, I mean, Canute doesn't seem to have been incredibly ruthless and killing earls left, right and centre. How did he manage to sit happily on the throne for a little while? Well, didn't he? He killed various people at the start, didn't he, of the English leaders, and then he didn't have to be ruthless anymore. <laughs> um, William the Conqueror's problem is that ideas about all this are changing in the 11th century. It's, it's not considered, you know, very good practice to kill people um, <laughs> at the top end of politics. Um, if you, the ideas of chivalry, in other words, are yes. sort of coming in. Yeah. Yes. We in England, we very much think of the Normans as William the First coming over in the Conqueror, and, and that's the Norman story. But there, there was a, it wasn't just England, was it? They, they, they were expanding all over the place. It was a great era. If you were a soldier of fortune, um, whether you want to call them strictly mercenaries or soldiers of fortune, but there were Normans fighting in Spain uh, uh, with the Christians against the Muslims. Um, they're great successes by the, the 1060s in South Italy. And they were Normans from, from Western Normandy. They were much fewer in number. I mean, Again, one of the things we tend to forget about 1066 is the sheer number of Normans that came over, whereas in Italy they were small bands of freebooters. They were bandits, and they 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 may have been led by Normans, but they had Muslims, they had local people in their in their armies, mm. and they were fighting a sort of small-scale guerrilla warfare from, from place to place and, and then tackling the big cities um, as and when. Uh, did they establish a, a kingdom in southern Italy? Yeah, I mean, this is the big story. Um, it still hangs over, like 1066 hangs over English history. What happened in the south of Italy hangs over the way Italians view their past, because during this period, there was a, a southern kingdom uh, centred on eventually on Palermo of Sicily and southern Italy. So it was united in a way the north wasn't. So Italian historians and Italians generally um, look to this unification of the south. And you can either say it, it was a forerunner of what happened in the 19th century, or you can say this is the origin of when the south became very poor, whereas the cities of the north, which were divided and set up republics and so on, flourished and renaissance and, and, and all points west, as it were. So it's a big turning point in the history of Italy. How much after the invasion were they thinking, we are Normans, but we also own this kind of bit of land over there? And how much were they thinking, oh, we're kings in England, and that's more important than, than Normandy. What, 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 in terms of the balance of importance between England and Normandy, how, how did that work? That's a very, very interesting question. And it's one that historians haven't addressed nearly as much about the impact these things had on the Normans' view of Normandy and, and its impact on Normandy itself. Um, I, I think a lot of the building is because they are stupendously rich. These are people who are rich. It's like winning the lottery, you know, they, they, and you can force the English peasants to do stuff. So you can get these castles built. Um, the bishops, these are some of the richest bishoprics in Western Europe. I mean, if you look at the scale of something like the wealth of the Archbishop of Canterbury, it's far greater than anything 
than the bishops of Puglia have, mm. uh, where a bishop in, you know, might well just have his cathedral church in a small city, and that's basically it. Whereas you think of the wealth of the archbishops of Canterbury or the bishops of Winchester. So they build because they can afford it, basically. Um, and that is bound to affect the sheer wealth um, that you have in your colonial enterprise is going to affect the way that you think of um, Normandy. And essentially, it's the kings who see it as important to control Normandy and for dynastic reasons. And a section of the elite that still have large estates in Normandy, um, and then a lot of other people who have settled in England, and, and that's where their interests are, that's where they're buried, um, that's where they marry, um, and so on. So it's, it shifts over time. But there must have been a lot of sort of manpower coming over from, from Normandy and, and settling in terms of the aristocracy and the, the priests and what. I mean, how did they have enough to kind of to, to go around? Yeah, I think they did. I, I mean, what you what you have to imagine is this is the just the top layer. It, it, I, I don't. I mean, estimates we just don't know how many, but I would guess no more than ten thousand. But it's already a society of unequals with a, a, a class of lords and a lot of peasants. So from the peasant perspective, you know, if your lord changes from being a Dane to being a Norman, you just get on with it, I guess. Mm. Um, but that's not to say uh, the new lords don't impose heavier services, um, they might re forcibly relocate you. This seems to have happened a lot in the north, that the whole communities are shifted to new locations. Um, but, uh, you know, what is interesting is that there, there aren't second and third waves. There are some high-profile people who are brought in, particularly by Henry I, from the part of Normandy he controlled before he was king. But there, are, there, are, there isn't a mass migration movement. I mean, essentially, it happens once. And then mm. um, there are open frontiers to, in Wales and to the north. And so the Normans who are settled in England move further into, into the British Isles. But there aren't huge waves of Normans coming over after 1066, I don't think. But we'd never know. How is Normandy viewed in in modern France? Um, does it do the, do the locals still feel that they are sort of separate? I suppose in the way that Cornish might in in the UK. Yeah. And how do the rest of France? I mean, are, are they still thought of as, as Normans, or are they all just happily French? I think it's a, a multiple layer. But if you go to Normandy, you see the flags of Normandy. Um, and, you know, I think there is still a strong sense in all provinces of France of, of the province and mm. the locality. Um, and also, of course, the way France is politically structured, it matters. Um, I remember going to conferences where you've got the local deputy, um, you know, they, they all show up and, and they're Norman and this, this is what matters. Um, somebody was talking to me about Jersey um, and the Queen, and I was saying, well, of course, in Jersey, she is le Duc de Normandy, <laughs> which she she was. Um, she ruled Normandy as the Duke of Normandy, and so in 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 it's a crown territory, but it is ruled as the Duke of Normandy. It's the last relic. When did the Channel Islands become British, for want of a better word? Does that does that go right back to yeah William's time? Yeah, gosh. Well, there we are. Yeah, there we are. That's a perfect way to finish. Thank <laughs> you so much, Judith. That was that was really interesting, and um, it was great to get to the word of authority on this. Not at all. Thank you. So there you go. The first monarch in our rhyme, and the first of our willies, William the Conqueror, William the Bastard. In the next episode, we'll hear the story of his son, our second Willie, William Rufus. And for those of you who think that the brotherly infighting in our current royal family is bad, just wait till you hear what it was like back in 1087. Follow or subscribe to the podcast now so you don't miss it when it drops. 
Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Hickson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Hickson, 2023. to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.